we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm so excited that you're listening this morning. Well, I'm actually recording from the other side of the country. I'm in North Carolina in the city of Winston-Salem, which turns out to be a very beautiful city, and I'm at Piedmont International University. I'm talking with Dr. Scott Smith, a recent graduate of Piedmont International University here in Winston-Salem. He recently obtained his Ph.D. in Biblical Studies with a concentration in Systematic Theology. He's going to be talking with us today, but you'll understand everything he says, I promise. Anyway, he's currently serving on both the faculty and staff for PIU, and his dissertation topic relates to our topic for today, so I'm excited for you to hear from him. Scott, welcome to the God Solution Show. Thank you, Nate. I really appreciate the opportunity to and just praise the Lord that uh, I have this chance to be here, and thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. It's exciting to have you, and I look forward to the interview. Well, as we get started, we were thinking about the topic of life after death, and so many people wonder about this topic, think about this topic. It's on everybody's minds. Of course, on The God Solution, if you've listened for long, you've heard us talk about this very thing in the past. We've had Dr. Gary Habermas on the show talking about the evidence for the resurrection and near-death experiences. We've had Dr. Mike Lacona on the show talking about some of the same issues and others as well. Dr. Craig Evans has talked about the resurrection and evidence for the resurrection. But anyway, in all these things, we've really looked at some of the evidence for Christ's resurrection. If you've listened for long, you may have heard the show titled My Top 10 Doubts and how they helped me grow closer to God. And in there, I talked about my biggest doubt. I think I said it was my biggest doubt. It's in my top one or two. And that is whether or not I can rise again after death. It's hard for me from a science background to emotionally grasp the reality of the believer's resurrection. I have no problem believing in the historical evidence for Christ's resurrection. And that gives me confidence that I can trust him with my own resurrection. It's hard for me to imagine it on my own. But when I realize that he did it for me and there's evidence for that, I can trust him that he'll do it for me as well, just like he promised in John 6:40. So trusting him with that personal doubt has helped me grow closer to him as I realize that there's a lot I can't understand with my own physical mind. I'm not very good at calculus and many other things, and I have to trust people that are experts in that field. And there's no greater expert in the field of resurrection than Jesus Christ who conquered death himself and promised to do it for all those who believe in him. So I'm talking today with Scott, who did his dissertation on this very thing. Can believers, can people, can all human beings rise from the dead? What does that mean? What does that look like? And specifically coming at that from a biblical perspective. So Scott, there's the question right there. Is there life after death? What do you think? Oh, definitely. I believe it. It's really based on the fact that the Bible says it. That's, that's what we have to go by. Because we don't have anything else experientially uh, to, to make that leap of understanding. Yeah, we don't have anything conclusive. Right. I, I guess maybe on the experiential level, some people might refer to near-death experiences and things like that. Please go to GodSolutionShow.com and listen to the interview with Dr. Habermas about near-death experiences. But even there, Habermas warns we should not build a theology based on these experiences. We build our theology based only on God's word. But it is interesting that there is some kind of empirical evidence for more than just this life. If you want to check out more about that, go to GodSolutionShow.com and check out the interview about 
near-death experiences. It was pretty interesting. So anyway, we've come to this issue of the resurrection from the dead. So before we get into it, I already talked about how Christ is our example of the resurrection. And in fact, if Christ hadn't raised from the dead, then we would really be in a bad place. In fact, we would really not have any hope whatsoever. We'd be stuck in our doubt. The reality is that Christ did beat death. Now, if you ask, how can we know that for certain? Well, you could look at eyewitness testimony. We see tons of eyewitnesses that actually saw Jesus rise from the dead, that actually saw the risen Christ, and they reported that to us. So we can look at the history, and we know that there were eyewitnesses. Scripture actually says there were over 500 of those eyewitnesses. Additionally, we have multiple early accounts. There are tons of different sources that describe Christ's resurrection. Now, a lot of those are in Scripture, and we can't write those off. Those are eyewitness accounts, and they're corroborated historically. But there's even more. We have hostile sources that corroborate the resurrection from sources outside of Christianity from the 1st and 2nd centuries. Additionally, we have skeptics like Paul and James, the brother of Christ, actually, that came to faith in Christ because they saw the risen Christ. And finally, who can argue with the empty tomb? No one does. Even in antiquity, they admit that the tomb was empty on that third day. So we know that the tomb was empty and no body was ever produced. We know that Jesus beat death, and there are many other good reasons to believe confidently that he conquered death. In fact, we talk about embarrassing details, which historians always accept as accurate. And there are so many of those in the gospel narratives about the resurrection. Women finding the tomb and things like that, which in that day was unheard of. Nobody would falsify a story and, and use that as their evidence. So there are so many great reasons to believe that Jesus actually beat death. In fact, the biggest critic of the New Testament, the biggest critic of the reliability of the New Testament alive today best-selling author, won't even propose a legitimate accusation against the evidence for the resurrection. In fact, he gives a very poor rebuttal of the evidence for the resurrection and then asks rhetorically, he says, is my rebuttal possible or logical or likely? He says, of course not, but it's better than believing a resurrection happened because we know that resurrections don't happen. Well, that's kind of importing his bias into his conclusion, and it doesn't really work, and he knows that. The reality, and he should just state it, is that the evidence for the resurrection is compelling, and you can't argue with it. So we can know for certain that Christ beat death, and I believe that because of that, we can have faith that he can do the same for us. So let's talk to Scott a little bit about this. Dr. Smith, what do you think? What kind of assurance do we have for our own resurrection? Well, as I said, really, the Bible's the the main piece of assurance because the type of resurrection that's talked about in the Bible is so qualitatively and quantitatively different than, say, a near-death experience or even a resuscitation that the doctors might do of someone back to life. So what the Bible describes is something quite different, and specifically, it's really what is revealed about Jesus' atonement for sin that brings about uh, an assurance to us of a resurrection. Yeah, we don't see people rising from the dead every day. No. (laughs) And even when we do hear these accounts like near-death experiences and things like that, you 
only can have so much confidence in them, right? There's a lot that's still questionable. But with Christ's resurrection, we have real, firm, conclusive evidence. We have something to hang our hat on, actually. That's right. That's right. Now, his it's his atonement, again, that's really where the assurance lies. And that's that's the center of the gospel message, is his atonement and his work on the cross. And in his in in my dissertation, I argue for a view of Christ's work on the cross, specifically his penal substitutionary atonement, which that view's under attack these days, but it views that atonement as universal and its substitutionary application being universal. So it has this objective saving result of the resurrection for every person, the resurrection from death. And that's the the key of what the atonement was designed to do. So in other words, because Christ died for me and for you and for every one of your listeners out there and every other person, we each one of us will be saved from physical death by being raised from the dead. He did that for each one of us. And he did it as the greatest single expression of his love that he could ever have done. Romans 5.8 states it, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this love was shown to us even when we were still enemies, according to verse 10. So you're saying that Christ's resurrection literally conquered death so that all people could live eternally and could live after they died. But you're not saying that this means every person will make it into heaven. That would be universalism. You're not saying that everyone is going to be saved in that capacity, correct? Correct. I am not advocating for universalism. The Bible does not teach that there is a a universal salvation uh, to that fullest extent that we think of for eternal life. Contrary to what? Rob Bell and other emergents would say we are not advocating that on this show, and we definitely both believe that every single person will stand before Jesus someday and will give an account for their life and specifically what they did with him and his gift of salvation. But on that note, why do you believe that everyone is resurrected based on Jesus conquering death? He, uh, eternal life for the believer is, is something much more than just the resurrection. Uh, eternal life involves fellowship and joy with God eternally. And what I'm saying is, is that God's penalty for sin was physical death. We all deserve to die. We all do die. We all ought to remain dead because we have failed to be like God designed us to be, to be like him. And we not only fail to be like him when we sin, But we're born sinners by nature, and inheriting sin from from Adam's corrupted nature when he sinned, and having sin accounted to us, to humankind, based upon our first ancestor's sin. So, uh, Romans 5.12 tells us that, that through one man's uh, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. So, Death stems initially from Adam's sin, but is deserved by all of us. Uh, for we, each one of us are sinful, and we will sin. But God chose by another, a sinless man, 
to pay that penalty brought by this first ancestor, to pay for all people's sins through the physical death of his one and only, totally unique son, Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh and who chose to give his own life voluntarily to please God his Father and save people from death. So his atonement is what pays for the resurrection, and then his own resurrection is what demonstrated that it's real. That we can believe this. We yes. actually have firm evidence of that. So we are not dealing with a child-abusing father killing his son for some sick pleasure, but rather we see in Scripture a loving joint action between the father and the son to make a payment for our sin, to make the only payment for our sin. Definitely. Definitely. This joint action is the penal substitutionary atonement. Could you describe that for our audience again, just in case people aren't tracking with us? What do you mean by that? Okay. Penal substitutionary atonement. There was a penalty for sin. That's the penal side of things. A legal law was laid down. In Genesis 2, God said that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. He said that to Adam. And that's the penalty laid down by law. He, in order to handle that penalty for people, Christ came as a substitute to die for us. So penal substitution, he is paying the penalty as a substitute. And the atonement is a word that basically means to, to make at one in our English language, but really it's the idea of reconciliation. And in this case, we're talking about an aspect of legal reconciliation that the penalty was due, a substitute took the place of that penalty, and so there is a reconciliation of that legal penalty in God's sight for everybody. So that's what I mean by penal substitutionary atonement. So everybody listening today has a sin nature, and there was a penalty deserved for that sin nature. Just like if you're speeding down the road and you get a ticket, there's a penalty that needs to be paid. Yes. The great news is that somebody paid that penalty for you so that you can be reconciled so there doesn't have to be this penalty paid on your behalf. It's been paid. Right. But there's more to the story than just that. Yes. Uh, by this righteous act uh, of Christ, the righteous God can now continue to be righteous because he's the one that laid down the penalty to begin with. So for him to have reversed it, he would have been unrighteous in that. But since he actually paid it, the penalty that was due was paid, he remains righteous. And so his declared penalty is done, and we no longer have to face that eternal death that we should have. God remains righteous. Jesus paid for the sins of all. As 1 John 2.2 2 states, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So he has propitiated or satisfied, that's what that word propitiated means, is satisfied fully God's own law that laid down that physical death penalty against sin. Now, Christ himself never did sin. He was sinless. And because of that, he could not be held by death. It had no power over him, and so he was raised from the dead, showing the victory he had. But more importantly to our topic today, because he paid the penalty for everyone's sins, then in his time, he credits that payment to us, and our resurrection will occur. In the meantime, 
he graciously uses believers in this present life, giving this period of time for those believers to work to call unbelieving sinners to repent, to change their mind and trust in, in him, in Christ, and what he's done and what God has designed to do through him. So today is the day of salvation for anyone who wants to believe. That is absolutely the case. You know, if you've listened for long, that at the end of every show, we give you the opportunity to make that decision to trust in Christ. We'll do that again today, but I would be crazy not to just camp on that for a second. Today is the day of salvation. There's no reason to wait any longer. Sometimes people say, well, I'm not ready. I haven't been to church in so long, or I still have this sin issue in my life, or I still have some doubts lingering. The Bible doesn't say come to Christ when every single doubt is satisfied, because guess what? You'll never get to that point. You'll never get to that point in your own marriage. For sure, you'll always have doubts whether you married the right person, whether you chose the right occupation, whether you bought the right house, whether you bought the right car, whether your diet is going to actually lead to a better life in the future. I mean, we're human beings, and we naturally doubt and second-guess ourselves about everything. I can't think of an area of knowledge that I don't have doubts about something. And guess what? Even the atheists has doubts about his atheism. And the Buddhist has doubts about his Buddhism. I mean, doubt is a human issue. It would be crazy to say, I can't come to Christ until every single doubt is answered. Instead, we come to Christ as we are, saying, to the best of my knowledge, I've surveyed the evidence, and the evidence says that Christ is trustworthy. And based on as much as I know, I'm going to put my trust in him, even if there are some lingering doubts. Timothy Keller put it that way. He said, he said, shaky faith in, I'm kind of paraphrasing, shaky faith in a secure God is much better than secure faith in something that's that's shaky. Oh, yeah. He said what we need to do is put what faith we have in the right thing, not waiting for our faith to be strong in the wrong thing. So wherever you're at today, I implore you, come to Christ. Put your faith in him. He alone has power over death. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution Show. You can go to godsolutionshow.com to see a list of the stations that we're on and the times that you can hear this show. And, of course, you can hear all of our past shows right there at godsolutionshow.com. We're interviewing Dr. Scott Smith of Piedmont International University about life after death and how we can be confident that there really will be life after death. And then beyond that, how we can make a decision today to put our faith in Christ to experience an eternity with him in heaven not just life after death, because life after death is kind of good, but it also could be very bad if somebody hasn't put their faith in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That's so, true. while you're arguing for an objective atonement, regardless of one's faith, faith still has a role in all of this for salvation. Yes, definitely. Christ's death paid the penalty of physical death. That will objectively bring the resurrection. So, we're talking about assurance of resurrection, all that assurance resides in Christ's work, nothing upon us, not even upon those that don't believe. It's going to happen. Uh, because we are unrighteous and not like God, as he designed us to be, then his wrath is also upon us because of our unrighteousness. Now, wrath is not a legal expression, but a relational one against both the ontological issue of our spiritual uncleanness and unrighteousness. So when I say ontological, I'm talking about the nature of our being. Uh, we are, by nature, 
unclean, unrighteous. That's part of our sinful nature since the fall of Adam. And then as well, the wrath is against us as a, as a relational issue because we rebel against God. We have animosity towards him. And so he responds with wrath, righteously so, because he deserves not that kind of treatment by us. And we were designed to be like him, and we're not being that. I mean, God is perfect. We're imperfect. I don't know how someone could rationalize a perfect God tolerating imperfection in his presence. It would be impossible. The two can't go together. I talk with people all the time that go, oh, that's a crazy view of God. Well, first of all, it's not a crazy view of God because you feel that way about your friends. When your friends sin against you, you don't want to spend time with them. You don't want to be with them. But we're still sinful. We're still imperfect, and we have those feelings toward imperfect people. Now, imagine perfection. Perfection can't tolerate imperfection in its presence. And even looking at it, you mentioned it. God in his righteousness couldn't tolerate this. God is just. If he were to tolerate sin without paying for it, he would not be just. And you could not possibly call him righteous and perfect. Well, and especially since he designed us to reflect who he is. Now, just to clarify, you're not saying that God stops loving us. So there's God's wrath. But in spite of that wrath, he loves you. Enough to give his own son for you, which is just unbelievable. I know for me, when somebody makes me that mad, it's hard to, to love that person. It, and that's a challenging thing because, as I said before, when Christ died, that was the single greatest expression of love God could do for anyone. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing greater he could have conceived of, of doing. And that was done for everybody so that they could be saved from death which was the penalty of sin. So I had talked about the fact that the payment of the penalty brings the resurrection and it brings immortality to that resurrected body. In other words, this is a full meal deal. He paid for our resurrection from physical death. That resurrected body is immortal. It is not going to die again because Christ paid. So regardless of whether one believes it or not, and everyone will eventually believe it when it actually occurs, the resurrection happens. And this resurrection is what I I refer to as the lesser salvation mentioned in 1 Timothy 4.10, where it says that Christ is the Savior of all men in this way, by saving them from death. But there in 1 Timothy 4.10, it also says he is the Savior especially of those who believe. So there is a greater salvation to come to those with faith. And that's important. So because Christ conquered death, every one of us will live forever. Now, where we live forever is what is at stake right now, correct? Yes, correct. Um, And I try not to use, I try and be careful using the term live because life in scripture has much more to it than just physical life. So yes, there will be a physical existence forever for people. Uh, The immortality, that is eternal for everyone. But the life itself consists of having that right relationship, that right and good relationship with God. That's really where life is. It's kind of like, even in our present world, Mm -hmm. you know, we can live the good life, 
or we can just kind of exist, mm -hmm. you know, through everything that we have to face and struggle with. And it's kind of that same way eternally. Uh, without the life, without that relationship with God, the immortality is a two-edged sword for the unbeliever because it does cut off physical death from ever again occurring, which then cuts back at them for they are cut off from God's eternal expression of love that was reserved only for believers. He wants to give his love out to everyone, but he's only going to do that for believers forever. So that's the, the issue that the unbeliever is facing. So those that scorn and reject this grace of God, essentially, but figuratively, are slapping God in the face saying, I don't care what you did for me. I hate you. By not trusting the God who has shown himself trustworthy, they fail to reconcile their relationship with God. They choose to remain enemies of God and therefore face his continued wrath eternally because they will never again physically die for sin, but they remain unrighteous in his sight. The gospel gives the remedy, though. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And then in Romans 4, we learn that God's righteousness shall be imputed, that is, accounted, to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So righteousness only comes by faith, and only perfect righteousness corrects God's wrath against a person, allowing that person to stand justified before God. So the gospel message is something everyone needs to respond to. Everyone. We know that there's life after death for all people. Immortality, not true life. Right. But everyone needs to make a choice what they'll do with Jesus Christ. Will they receive the payment that he made for their sins, put their faith in him, and receive eternal life with him? Or will they choose to go their own way and be eternally separated from God? At which point eternal life becomes a very bad thing. Yes, yes. The good news is that Christ has already paid as a substitute for each of our sins, every person, believer and unbeliever. And the good news is the resurrection to come because of that. It's been verified by Christ's own resurrection from the dead. It's talked about in Scripture in multiple places. It states the fact that it's going to happen, and it states why it's going to happen, because of his payment. But to disregard that good news, the gospel message, and to scorn the good work that God has done to save people from death, that act does not result in more good news. It ends in eternal judgment. So today, if you're listening and you're at a point where you realize, yes, there is going to be life after death, and I have to make a choice whether I'm going to spend that eternally separated from God or eternally with him, enjoying him forever, I would invite you to to put your faith and your trust in him right now, to say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for me, a sinner. I believe that you rose again to give me new life. I ask you to come into my life to be my Savior and Lord, to change me into the person that you want me to be. Today I'm making that decision to follow you. The Bible says that if you put your faith and trust in him, that you've been adopted into his family. I hope that you took that step and verbally expressed that to God in prayer with me. If you haven't, I pray that you do that soon because there's no other step that would be more important to take than that one. And if you do take that step, can they be confident, Scott, that they will experience eternity with God in heaven if they've put their faith in him genuinely? Amen, amen. It's 
the resurrection is going to happen and their relationship will be healed with God and everything will be good. It's not because of any work you've done, but simply because you chose to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Dr. Smith, where could people find more about your dissertation and some of your work? My dissertation is posted online at academia.edu. And uh, if you want to search for it, you're going to, it would be difficult. term I've coined for this uh, view of the atonement is pananastasism. It's from two Greek words meaning all resurrectedism, talking about the fact that the atonement pays for the resurrection. Certainly, I invite you to check me out on academia.edu. And we'll have that link up at godsolutionshow.com. Scott, any last words? Well, thank you again, Nate, for having me. And I just pray all you in the listening audience that you would turn to Christ as your Savior. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show today. I hope you'll keep listening. I encourage you to visit a local church this weekend. In fact, you can find a list of local churches at godsolutionshow.com. Visit a local church this weekend, wherever you're at in your faith, whether you're a strong believer, a new believer, or not even yet a believer. Why don't you visit a local church and kind of Grow in your own walk with God. Take a step of faith and check out a local church this weekend. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. And definitely tune back in next week. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week.